the message. <laughs> That's a hard act to follow over there. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Glad you made it through that night and enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. And as we go to God's Word this morning, we, our conference theme is His Unshakable Kingdom. There's also another part to that theme called His Prevailing Church. And if we can, if God helps us over the next few moments, we're, we're going to try to unpack this just a little bit. There's been some profound stuff so far. I found myself wondering, but can she cook? Let's read the Bible, then we're going to pray and ask God to, to help us. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. For the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, say that word with me, everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Lord, your word is so rich. We humble ourselves before you and ask for your help. Holy Spirit, teacher, please come. Open our minds to understand. Open our hearts to believe. Move upon our wills that we may obey your word today. Help us, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as we start this morning, I want to lay a little foundation and give you a couple of definitions here. The kingdom of God, the expression of God's inter-agape. The church, those that Jesus purchased to be kingdom participants. The church is very simply the people of God. The kingdom is God's Rule. Now, when we talk about a prevailing church, we're talking about the community of Jesus, celebrating the story of Jesus, and manifesting the kingdom of Jesus. That he might be what? Preeminent, Preeminent in everything. Oh, there is a kingdom church dynamic that weaves through the scripture. We don't have time to unpack the whole deal this morning, but just to make a contrast between the kingdom and the church. They're both beautiful. The kingdom, it comes. Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come. Jesus brings the kingdom. Jesus shows up and says, the kingdom of God is here, baby. Why is the kingdom here? Because the king is here. When the king shows up, the kingdom's there. 
Jesus manifests the kingdom. If you've seen me, now the church is a little bit different. Jesus builds the church. He doesn't build the kingdom. The kingdom comes. But the church, it's a building project. Jesus doesn't bring the church. Jesus purchased the church. How do you know how valuable something is? Jesus purchased the church. That's how valuable the church is to him. Jesus loves the church. I don't know that it says he loves the kingdom, but he loves the church so much that he gave himself up for the church. All of this, though, brings me to ask a challenging question. Why do we like the kingdom more than we love the church? Don't answer that out loud. I'll give you a few answers. The kingdom is incorruptible. The church is not a corruption-free zone. How many know that? Answer two, we love the kingdom because we long to participate in the, the fusion of the kingdom. There is a desire in our hearts to enter this dance we've been talking about. We want to be there. But when we think about the church, we have experienced the pain of fission in the church. We, we felt that. So when we think about church it's not always with the same happy thoughts that we have when we think about kingdom. Answer number three. Because we don't like dirt. Especially when we know it shouldn't be there. You walk down the aisle to get married, and this is what you see. You say, oh my. A little girl went with her mom to her first wedding. She's five years old. She said, Mommy, why is the bride wearing white? Well, Mommy said, well, it's because it's her wedding day. And this is, white is a happy color. This is the happiest day of her life. And so she's, she's happy. So that's why she's wearing white. So the little five-year-old girl thought about that. Why is the groom wearing black? <laughs> there is a mega mystery that is unpacked in Scripture. The mega mystery is this. Jesus, <laughs> this, this, this bride, right? Jesus loves the church. Christ loved, Christ agaped the church, the ecclesia, and gave himself up for her. Paul told the elders as he's checking out and leaving the church in Ephesus in their care, care 
for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This mysterion is profound. It's mega. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. There's this mega mystery that Jesus deeply, passionately loves his church. Now this, is, this is personal for me, and I want to unpack for a couple of moments why a prevailing church matters to me personally. Let me give you two reasons for this. First of all is vocationally. My day job, I'm a church planter. When I'm not working with my dad and helping, see, this is what I do. Um, about 10 years ago, I put a map of the United States in front of my wife and said, where shall we go? There's a lot of beautiful places and gospel-needy places here in the United States. Now, this was after we had been in Ukraine planting churches for five years. I was hoping she'd say Hawaii or... <laughs> my wife said, when you consider the gospel need in Europe compared with the gospel need, I think God's calling us back to Europe. Um, so we, we started the Center for European Church Planting, which is now part of CBU. Um, it wasn't because we, uh, like um, Scottish haggis, it's, it's not because we like French cafes or, or Austrian Wiener schnitzel or Swiss chocolate. Um, Europe is a spiritually toxic place. But the need for the gospel is there. And so this idea of a prevailing church, this is personal. This is what I do. Um, and Jesus, Jesus cares about his church. Uh, but it's also, this is also important for me for another reason. And that is it's important familially. Now, this is my family. I affectionately call them my portable sorority. I have six daughters and one wife, um, and uh, yeah, th this, is, this is us. They, they, this is pictures a few years ago. They currently range in ages from 21 down to 11, and uh, this is, try this, this is my oldest daughter, Julia. She's 21, just got back from a year in Japan. She's studying Japanese and feels called by God to go be a missionary in Japan. This is my second daughter, Mariah. She's also studying Japanese, feels called by God to go be a missionary in Japan. This is my third daughter, Savannah, who's graduating from high school next year. She's going to study theology and be a missionary in the UK. This is my fourth daughter, Joanna. She's the tallest one, almost as tall as me now. She's studying Korean. <clears throat> She's 15, studying Korean because she wants to plant, um, she wants to, uh, what's the, the, the orphanages? She wants to plant orphanages along the border of North Korea. Um, and uh, God's put this dream in our heart, and I said, can't you pray about another place? <laughs> um, <clears throat> this is my fifth daughter. She's, she's 13. She's studying German. Where do they get all this? I, 
And then this is my sixth daughter, and uh, she, she, she's our, our, our great evangelist. And you know, th this is the portable sorority. But, and and here's, here's the deal. Um, there's a lot that I love, but I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. I, I have no greater joy than this right here. There is nothing apart from that. Now, I saw some of you raise some hands the other day, and I'll ask this again. How many of you have children or grandchildren that you're believing for? All over this room. I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. But as Pastor Jim LaFoon unpacked yesterday morning, and as you feel and as you are aware, we live in a toxic kind of age. You are concerned about the world your grandchildren are growing up in. Um, I am too. Let me try, I'm going to try to explain the new normal that our children are growing up in. I've spent years trying to understand this thing called postmodernism. I determined I'm not smart enough to understand it. But um, postmodernism fundamentally is incredulity towards the meta-narrative. Um, in postmodernism, which was a reaction to modernism, there are no absolutes. In postmodernism, there is no such thing as truth. The world your grandchildren are growing up in, they don't believe in the Marian narrative anymore. There's no such thing as truth. There are no absolutes. So when you try to appeal on a truth track or an absolute track, you are speaking Greek to a Chinese. Now, just as I start to wrap my mind around postmodernism, post-postmodernism has emerged. And I really don't get this. Another word for post-postmodernism is digimodernism. I can't even say that. Now, it's marked by triteness and shallowness. It's defined by superficial participation. Now, let me see if I can give you a picture to explain what these words mean. Postmodernism <laughs> is Seinfeld. It's a show about nothing. Post-postmodernism, the quacks have taken over. Postmodernism, there's no truth. Post-postmodernism, there's no reality. How do we bring our children up in this brave new world? Um, this is tough. If it weren't tough, we'd all already be victorious in doing this. Well, let me try to explain a little bit why this is tough. Time of the Reformation, there was a there was a question the Reformation asked. How can God save sinners? This is what Luther wrestled with. How can holy God dispose of human corruption? 
Luther got the revelation. Yeah, God's holy. We sing that holy, holy, holy. And he was deeply honest about the level of our corruption. It's total, baby. It's like pregnancy. You're not just a little bit pregnant. We're not just a little bit corrupt. The Reformation word was total depravity. We are messed up deeply. And the Reformation understood that. They got the question right. It's the right question. It is the question the Bible answers. But here's the problem. People aren't asking that question today. The, the postmodern question, what's the matter with God? If God is good, then why is the world the way it is? Why did God let Aunt Susie die of cancer when she was 38? Um, this is the pain our world lives in. The Bible answers the Reformation question, but that's, that's not the question that's dominating our current deal. So as I ponder this, as I wrestle with, like you, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. And so I think like this. I think there are three things that our children need to walk through this wilderness and be part of a prevailing church and, and God's purposes and enjoy this kingdom. I think our children need a king. They need an authoritative rescuer. I think our children need a community, a genuine demonstration of kingdom values and participation in kingdom life. And our children also need a story, a true narrative that connects the dots for them that makes the big picture make sense. Now, these three things have been corrupted both by postmodernism and post-postmodernism. The postmodern corruption goes like this. There's no, there is no king, and there is no truth. In postmodernism, there is no community. Groups are simply assemblages of victims. And in postmodern corruption, there is no story. All meta-narratives are subjective and can be deconstructed. And trying to communicate truth in this context is challenging. Now, the post-postmodern corruption goes like this. There is a virtual king. You are the boss of your own avatar. There's a virtual community. Facebook friends are real friends. People actually think that. And then there's a virtual story. You're the author. Write your own ending. Um, these are the king, the community, and the story being corrupted. Um, I want to look at a couple of teachings that Jesus did that if, if, we can, if we can identify this, will give us a key to help us communicate in this age that we're living in. We're going to look at two teachings, two conversations, two questions that Jesus did. The first is the king and his kingdom out of Matthew 13. The second one is the Lord and his church in Matthew 16. At the end of Matthew 13, Jesus asks his disciples a very straight-up question. He said this, do you understand these things? That's a great question. 
Um, and the, these things that he had been teaching are everything that comes before that in Matthew chapter 13, which is a series of parables about the kingdom of God. They are on one level very accessible because Jesus used pictures and words that, that we all comprehend. On another level, they're incredibly deep, and they challenge the disciples and the, the, the paradigm, the, the picture that the disciples had of the kingdom. These are the, these things. Jesus talked about seed and soils. The kingdom is a kingdom of the word. He told them a story about weeds and wheat and said there ultimately will be separation, but not now. He told them about leaven and mustard seed. The kingdom is hidden, but it is effective. He taught about treasure and pearl. The kingdom has indescribable value. And he told them about a net that catches all the little fishies. And then there's a sorting. So after Jesus teaches through these things, he comes back to the disciples. Do you understand these things? And in an amazing sort of answer, they said, yes. Yes, we do. Now, maybe they did. I really don't. But they did. Or they thought they did. We'll question this. And so when they said, when they said yes, we do, this is what Jesus said. This is his answer to their statement. Every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure both what is new and what is old. Now, I love this about Jesus. The answers Jesus gives to questions are always different from I'm always having trouble connecting dots because Jesus plays at this whole other level. And here, this is his answer. His answer a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. He brings out of his treasure things that are old, things that are new. Now, scribes at the time, these were the, these were the Bible guys. They, they copied the Bible, but not only that, in the Jewish community, they would, they would rule on Jewish life and, and law. They, were, they, were in, they knew their Bible. Jesus is saying that someone who has been immersed in the text of Scripture but is given, trained, opened into the kingdom has both an old treasure and a new treasure. This kingdom scribe is able to see, to interpret, to interact with, to be interactive with the old in the light of the new. Um, and this is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus taught his disciples. An example is in Luke 24, resurrection day. He's on the road to Emmaus. These two guys are complaining, we thought he was going to be the one. This is what Jesus said, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gave them a hermeneutic key to unpack all the old stuff that they had been seeped in. They didn't get it. The hermeneutic key 
the principle for interpreting the Bible is this. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus himself is what the Old Testament is all about. They had been soaked in it. They didn't get it. He opened it for them. And when they came to the table, they finally got it. Um, Jesus, to explain the old and the new, Jesus preached the gospel to these two guys on the Emmaus Road. And the gospel that he preached was from the Old Testament scriptures. When you read through Acts, it's an amazing thing. Every time Paul is preaching to Jews in a synagogue, he opens the scriptures. When it says scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. Imagine being dropped on, a, on, a, on an island, and your job is to communicate the gospel to people who have never heard it before, but the only Bible you have in your hand is the Old Testament. That was apostolic ministry in the book of Acts. That was the Bible they had. Jesus walking along the road to Emmaus unpacks the gospel in the Old Testament scriptures. There's so many places we could go. Here's one example. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we are healed. There are about five conversations in the history of the universe I would love to have a recording of. Jesus preaching the gospel on the road to Emmaus from the Old Testament is one of those. I would love to hear him unpacking the gospel, which is the story about himself to the guys on the road to Emmaus. Now, so let's summarize this kingdom conversation that Jesus has in Matthew 13. The disciples expected an instantaneous kingdom. Jesus gave them a progressive kingdom. They didn't have a category for that. That's why they were confused when Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Their immediate question was, well, if the kingdom's here, why are the Romans still here? This, this doesn't work, Jesus. The disciples also expected a victorious king, but Jesus offered them a king who dies for. He was wounded for our transgressions. They didn't have a category for a progressive kingdom. They did not absolutely have a category for a king who dies. The key to understanding the kingdom is the gospel of Jesus in the Old Testament, unpacking that he dies for. Now let's look about the church conversation. Matthew 16, famous scripture, who do you say that I am? Now in one of his few brilliant theological moments of insight, Peter actually gets this right. You're the Christ. The son of the living God. Now, we're looking back at this through the lens of the New Testament. 
Peter was still thinking Old Testament. Peter is saying, you are the promised Messiah who's going to make it all okay. That's what Peter was affirming. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. You are the one who is promised who's going to make it all okay. Yeah, we get that. And Jesus affirmed that. He said, Peter, well said. You know what I can do with that revelation right there? I will build a prevailing church. It's going to win, Peter. Well said. Flesh and blood didn't open that to you. My Father did. But Jesus went on to explain, though, how he's going to build this gospel-shaped church. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The kind of prevailing church Jesus is going to build involves this pathway of going to Jerusalem and dying. The cross is part of the building methodology of Jesus. Now, the next step here is kind of painful. The church rejects the gospel. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, I know the thought that a church would reject the gospel is difficult to wrap your mind around, but we have a long history of rejecting the gospel. Um, Jesus, you got this whole... You got this whole, this whole cross thing all wrong. Jesus, no, 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 no. You're, you're getting ahead of yourself. Drop the death with Jesus. Um, leave this with the marketing department. As a matter of fact, we've already sent some emissaries ahead. We have the palm branches ordered. We've, got, so we, we've paid some crowds. Jesus, we, the, the marketing department has this deal figured out. Just stop talking about this death stuff, Jesus. You're freaking the guys out. That's not how it's going to work. Jesus didn't answer Peter real nicely with that one. When you start tampering with the gospel, Jesus takes it kind of personally. So here's the church conversation summary. The disciples were expecting a prestigious church. Jesus offered a prevailing church. The disciples expected a successful Savior. Jesus gave them a sacrificial Savior. So let's summarize this. When Jesus taught about the kingdom, he preached the gospel. The kingdom-trained scribe reaches into his treasure and brings out what's new and old. He interprets the old, the gospel promises in light of the new. When Jesus taught about the church, he preached the gospel. I will go to Jerusalem and die. So we have this one gospel theme that if you want to see Paul on a mission, read the first chapter of Galatians. There's one gospel, baby, and do not mess with it. Oh, this is what he said. The gospel is about a king who died to bring us into the kingdom. And the church is about a Lord who died to purchase a church. 
So when Paul was writing to a church that needed a few tweaks, the church in Corinth, this is what he says. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Out of all the things Paul could remind the Corinthians out, I'm going to remind you about the gospel. See, some of us think that the gospel is how you get in the door and then you go on to other stuff. I hold before you the other day, the gospel is how you come into the house and how you live in the house. You never leave the king who died for you and the Savior who was sacrificed for you. So Paul reminds them of the the gospel that was received, that they're standing in, by which they're being saved. And then he unpacks it. Here's the gospel he gave them. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now look at this first importance that Paul unpacks for them. He gave them a Christology, a historiology, and a soteriology. He opened up the gospel is about the God-man, Christ. He gave them a history, the death, burial, resurrection, and appearance of Jesus. He's saying this thing is real. It's rooted in history. This isn't a meta-narrative that's open to deconstructing. This is real. It really happened. And a message of salvation, it was for our sins. For the church in Corinth to be prevailing, Paul reminds them of what's of first importance. The God-man who came, the facts of his life, and the fact that he died for our sins. When we receive this one gospel, it's an amazing thing. Our corruption is dealt with. We become a new creation. Our relationships are redefined. We are brought into a new community. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And we have a new king. Our citizenship application is processed. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. When we lived in Ukraine... Uh, back in the early 90s, it was different from how it is now, and it was, it was dark. And after we'd been there for a few months, we, we took a family vacation and went into Poland, which at the, at the time was just, uh, it was just sweetness and beautiful, and it was our place for R&R. And the very first time we crossed the border, from Ukraine into Poland, and our passports were processed, stamped, and we come out on the other side, and the atmosphere in our car changed instantaneously. Three-year-old children felt the joy. It was amazing. 
We're tra- we've been transferred from one kingdom to another. And so this is what the gospel does for us. It deals with our corruption, it heals our relationships, and it gives us a new identity. That's why we have to keep it. We never lose it. And so going back to this need that our children have, there is a key that unlocks king and community. It is the gospel. The gospel is the story of the king who loved me. Because here's the truth. I was so corrupt, he had to die. I was so loved, he was glad to die. We forget our corruption. We think, I really wasn't so bad. Or we forget that we're deeply, deeply loved. We have to live in this thing called the gospel which is why Paul wrote to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I I, I could have given you anything, but I'm going to remind you about the gospel. I'm going to remind you about your family story. I'm going to remind you about the story of the king who loved you so much. He died for you. Because in this, you have a new king, you have a new community, and you have a new story, you have a new citizenship, you have a new identity. And it's all there in the story. That's what Paul said. This is what Tom said. The story of Jesus is sufficiently powerful to transform the people of Jesus to look like Jesus. Do you believe that? Is that story that powerful? Does the gospel actually work? It does. Now let's try to Apply this a little bit. When the church keeps the story of Jesus at its center, it is transformed. It is washed, cleansed, renewed, so that it manifests the aroma of the kingdom. Hold that word aroma in your mind for just a moment. Now, I want to look at this church kingdom tension. Trying to do kingdom without church, you become a community of one. That's like trying to teach an only child how to be generous. Agape this brother you don't have. (laughs) Trying to do church without kingdom, that's a community without love. When we're Christ-centered and gospel-centered, we walk this balance. Here it is again. Kingdom without gospel, we end up in moralism. Church without gospel, we end up in institutionalism. When Christ is at the center, we walk this fine line. So we come back to what is a prevailing church. 
It's a community of Jesus celebrating the story of Jesus, manifesting the kingdom of Jesus. So when we talk about planting churches, we're talking about planting communities of Jesus, celebrating, living, and exalting the story of Jesus that manifests the kingdom of Jesus. Now, how do we know that the church will be prevailing? I know Jesus said he would build it, but yet we've all experienced church. So we wonder, how do we know? How's this thing going to happen? This is what we come back to. Jesus says, I'm going to make this beautiful. That's why we can trust him. Because Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, got my prop this morning. <laughs> Howard Schultz was the founder of Starbucks. And after doing that for a while, he said, I want to I put this down and let somebody else run, run the deal. And not too long after he did that, the stock value of Starbucks went way down. And as a continued shareholder, that's, this is, but not just that, this is his baby. And so after some wrestling, he came back in and he started to visit Starbucks to see what went wrong. Where did the plot get lost? How did the thing that was so good end up so bad? And he walked into a Starbucks. You know what he smelled? Burnt cheese. Now, if you've ever had a Starbucks toasty, they're great. They're really yummy. Starbucks makes some great sandwiches. But what are you supposed to smell when you walk into Starbucks? You walk into Starbucks, you're supposed to smell the coffee. Do our lives and churches manifest the aroma of Christ? When someone visits your church, do they smell the cheese? Or do they smell the coffee? Where do we start? That in everything, he might be preeminent. The people of Jesus celebrating the story of Jesus, manifesting the aroma of Jesus. This is what our kids need. This age we're living in is a bit intimidating. So I'll close with a story that will hopefully encourage you. This is the University of Ivano-Franco in Lviv, Ukraine. And in May of 1990, uh, I was on a mission trip, a two-week mission trip with Dean Simpson to Poland. And at the end of that, we had two days into which we went into Ukraine. 
We arrived on a Tuesday night. We were on a Monday night. We were leaving on Thursday morning. We were there Tuesday and Wednesday. And on Tuesday morning, we assembled in the lobby. And I was there with, I was 23 years old. And I had five other people from my church with me. And we assembled in the lobby of this hotel. And Dean Simpson's a really good guy. And I was excited. We were, this, it was still the Soviet Union then. And I was excited to get our marching orders for the day. Dean was going to give us the strategy by which we were going to advance God's gospel in the Soviet Union. And so we assembled there in the hotel lobby and Dean said, well, let's just trust the Lord and go out into the town and see what God does. I immediately got into a foul mood because I kind of like a plan and a strategy and and so this group that I was with, these other uni students, we, we walked down the hill through the park and saw this building. And right on the, in this, the steps there, we walked up and met a girl who happened to speak English. And before we knew it, five of her friends were standing around us speaking English. And they did the righteous thing as they met these Americans. They decided to skip class and show us around the city. <laughs> Several hours later, the Holy Spirit finally got through my very tough exterior. Hello, McFly. <laughs> this is a gospel moment. So I said to this girl who spoke English, I said, I teach on universities in the United States. Now, I didn't tell her I was a Bible teacher that preached the God. I just, I teach on universities. And maybe your professors would like to hear a native speaker of English. She said, oh, that's a great idea. So we went back to the university. She talked to her professor, and within an hour, they had assembled a room twice this size and brought five or six English classes together and gave me an open podium. <laughs> After I overcame this thoughts of intimidation that as soon as I mentioned Jesus... Secret panel doors are going to open. <laughs> KGB agents are going to rush in. I'll never see my fiance or family again. Off to the gulags in Siberia I go. I overcame that moment, and here's the deal. What did I give them? There's a whole lot of things in that moment. But there's only one thing that actually gives them the king and community and the story that they need to participate in all that the Father's been orchestrating. And that is the gospel. A lot of things that you could say in that moment. I determined I will give them the gospel. Now, we try to unpack it articulately and in a way that's comprehensible and makes sense. I talked for an hour and tried to frame some things. And then for another hour, they asked questions. And the, the professor who organized all of this had written his PhD, his dissertation on the notions of goodness and evil in the English language. And so he asked me, what is sin? <laughs> Great question. It was a beautiful moment. It was beautiful. 
So we made an appointment to get back together the next day with this, this group, and before we did, gave them some tracks. And the next morning, as we're there, right on the steps, waiting to, to meet these people, this professor came walking up and had this huge smile on his face. And he said, you know, Tom, last night, you know, you gave me this track, and I took it home last night, and I read it. And on the back of it, there's this prayer. And... I prayed that prayer, and I came down, and I told my family this morning, I'm forsaking atheism, and I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart. One life, one moment, one day, and today we have eight churches, I think, in, in western Ukraine. Just, just from that one door because we gave them the gospel. What do we do with that? Simply this. As you're praying and as you're living, as you're navigating these very tricky cultural currents, we will never outgrow giving the gospel away. How we communicate it the, the, the nuances, yes, we, we have to be thoughtful. But at the end of the day, it is only ever always about Jesus. That he might be preeminent in everything. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess this morning that, Lord, there's a lot we could confess. Lord, sometimes we, we feel like it's gospel plus. Sometimes we don't have as much confidence in your gospel as Paul did. Lord, we're sorry for that. Lord, sometimes we don't love your church as much as you love your church. Lord, forgive us for despising the bride you died to purchase. And Father, if we're honest, sometimes our lives and churches smell like cheese. We don't manifest the aroma of Christ. You dream about a prevailing church. You dream about a, a community of Jesus living in the story of Jesus, manifesting the character of Jesus. We pray today, O oh God, let your kingdom come and let your church be built that in everything Christ may be preeminent. We ask it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.